Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. to research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and joining me today is author and journalist Karen Brannan for a discussion after the family tree, a lynching in Georgia, a legacy of secrets, and my search for the truth. Karen Brannon will share the many twists and turns her work for racial justice has taken since the book's release in 2016. This includes meeting and building relationships with black and white cousins she'd never known of, joining the movement for lynching remembrance and reparations and working with others to do the kind of research she did for her book. Karen Brannon is a longtime investigative reporter and documentary filmmaker whose book, The Family Tree, A Lynching in Georgia, A Legacy of Secrets, and My Search from the Troop calls James Pond renowned author of The Cross and the Lynching Tree and founder of Black Liberation Theology to write, every American should read this book. So let me give a warm welcome to Karen Brannan to the show. Welcome, Karen. Thank you, Bernice. It's so good to be here. So nice to hear your voice again. Thank you for having Well, thank you for joining me. Well, I want to take you back to what motivated you to write this book. Well, Bernice, uh, there are many many answers to that question. Uh, I think I was born to write this book. I think 
I came into this world to tell this story. Uh, I was given a little snippets of stories by my father, by other people in my family. Um, as a child, little bits and pieces, uh, I always knew there was a story there for me to tell. And I always wanted to be a writer, but I became an investigative journalist, um, which is good because those skills um, were good for me to have when I was researching this book. Um, I, what, what really triggered it for me, though, at the very end, I, I can look back and see many times that I was being handed a story uh, or pieces of it that I turned away, that I, I was just not ready for it. And so it wasn't until I was in my 50s uh, that I learned that I was going, that my son and his uh, girlfriend, who is African-American, were going to have a child. And I still had uh, a whole castle of racist uh, relatives in Georgia. I was living in Minnesota. I had long been involved in civil rights, uh, racial justice work. But I began to have nightmares, and I began to have great, uh, great trepidations about terrible things that were going to happen to all of us uh, because of this child. And it was crazy. It didn't make any sense. Um, and, and something in me then knew that I could no longer run from that story that I knew was waiting for me down uh, in Harris County, Georgia. So um, for those that haven't read the book, and even for those that have who are listening, um, I have a little short essay that, that kind of pulls it all together um, in a few pages uh, that I would like to read, if that's okay. Certainly. I call it History Comes. History Comes Round Midnight. In the beginning, the history wanted me more than I wanted the history. It came for me as a brown grandchild, kept secret from her racist great-grandmother as nightmares that sent me screaming through the house as a near-midnight ghost at the end of my bed. Go home, find out what happened, said the ghost, a dead black woman. And so I did again and again over heartbreaking decades. In the undertow of emotion, my basic reporting skills faded. It fell to nature, to dreams, fiction, animals, elders, to serve as guides, ancient mariners, toothless and blind, anxious to unburden, caught my eye as I roamed country roads. Most would turn out to be kinfolk, or kinfolk of former slaves of kinfolk, or both, each held precious, trembling pieces of my puzzle. I was there to learn of a lynching, but first I learned of liaisons, I knew only that four people were murdered, that the sheriff my great-grandfather had on orders of the mob fled in advance, and that my grandfather, his deputy, oversaw it all. I wanted to believe the newspaper stories I had unearthed, a dispute over rents, but was open to anything other than what my cells already knew. As a child, I saw patterns. I believe God made two of each person, I told my mother. One white, one black. Don't talk crazy, she replied. The toothless black woman told of white bachelors who frequented black women's cabins, first in the yard, then on the porch, then inside. She named names, told me which white man fathered which black children, named her own third great... Named her own third great... 
grandfather. Oh dear, I can't believe I've done this. The one whose name she bore, an ancestor of my own. Black people know a lot about this, I told my mother. Black people know a lot about us, I told my mother, the sheriff's daughter, during a visit. I don't want to know what they know, she replied. I searched for a cemetery hidden deep in a forest. On the verge of defeat, I braked as a steady deer suddenly bounded over my car. There before me lay the red clay path. At the cemetery, red thistle flowers beckoned me to the tombstone of a third great uncle, James B. Moore, cracked open wide enough to enter or exit. The pieces were coming together. In the courthouse, I reach for a heavy burgundy ledger which tumbles off the shelf untouched and lands open to a page titled Certificate of Indenture by James B. Moore, 1868. The document tells a long secret story of this farmer and his former slave indenturing her seven mulatto children, promising to educate, discipline, clothe, feed, and provide them a decent future. These words leap off the page, as a father would. I am riveted to those words, as a father would. Only then do I recollect the name of one of the four people. A woman, three men, hanged high and shot to ribbons around midnight on January 22, 1912, beside Friendship Baptist, John Moore, barely an adult, From the courthouse window, I spotted the Confederate statue on the square, facing north, rifle at the ready, erected not simply to honor the fallen, but to glorify white supremacy, which had suffered severely in those post-war years as miscegenation flourished and populist biracial politics threatened and the Confederates refused to acknowledge loss. It will remind our men to remember plantation manners, wrote the local editor about the statue. One year later, four innocent black people who had opposed those plantation manners for how they savaged black people were dangling from a tree. Slowly, I came to understand that the midnight massacre so carefully concealed within my family was not only about my family, but about the American family. In coming years, I would, like the ledger, fall off my shelf, open to the right page. Like the deer, I would startle drivers into seeing the path, and like the red thistle, beckon the blind to the open tomb. The book I would write and the DNA I would cast into the world would, over time, bring many in my castaway family together. Just before Christmas 2019, cousins, three black, two white, all Moors, gathered at Friendship Baptist to collect soil we imagine holds memory and hope. We carried the soil to Montgomery, Alabama, poured it into four jars, inscribed John Moore, Lodeska Crutchfield, Gene Harrington, Reverend Burl Hardaway, then joined the jars with thousands more at the Peace and Justice Memorial to proclaim a long hidden truth and to become a beacon of hope for a beleaguered nation. That's it. Karen, just listening to you, it, it really brought tears to my eyes just to hear of what you have uncovered and what you have just shared with us. 
and unfortunately calling this an American story is a very sad story indeed. So now that this book has been published and now that the word is out, you mentioned something one time when we spoke that people should be careful when they start shaking their family tree. So what does that really mean to you? Because you have shaken your tree and you have uncovered it. Well, uh, but it's, it's interesting that that I said that because uh, I, I I actually went out went out you know pretty much knowing uh, much of what, some of what I was going to find you know I knew that there were uh, there were horrible secrets uh, that were being hidden so it wasn't like you know I was the typical genealogist who went looking for royalty as we say. Um, you know, and discovered criminals instead. I knew there were criminals out there. You know, I believe I was actually quoting my aunt, Evelyn, who uh, knew better than I at the time. She told me that. She said, be careful when you go shaking that family tree. Um, She knew exactly. She knew exactly what was in that tree. Um, And she actually gave me the, you know, she gave me the clues that I needed, um, and and I, I didn't really act on those clues in the beginning. There was a part of me that wanted this story, and there was a part of me that wasn't quite ready for it yet, you know? So I can look back now and see how it probably took me two or three times uh, as long to get the story as it would have had I not been so uh, bound up and and programmed as I had been as a child of a white a white child of white supremacy growing up in Jim Crow Georgia, uh, you know taught that uh, there were horrible things that you should never look at, and if you did, horrible things were going to happen to you. Now, you know now, ironically, I'm not out telling people not to shake their family tree. I'm out encouraging white people to shake their family tree. Because I think that's exactly what we need to do. That's what this country needs. And, um, mm-hmm. and it's happening, you know, it, 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 it's happening to uh, not as much as it needs to, but far more than I would ever have dreamed five years ago that it would be happening. Mm-hmm. Uh, so tell us, since you have published this book, we're talking five years later. So let's talk about after the publishing of this book, what reactions did you uh, get from your community? And just tell us where things are today. Well, the you know the reactions were nowhere close to as uh, condemning and negative as I uh, had feared they would be because I grew up believing you just didn't do this. You know, you didn't. You didn't rat out your family, uh, and you didn't mm-hmm. ally yourself with, with black people in a public way that humiliated your family or shamed your family. So I was, I, I believed that, that I was committing a cardinal sin, but I believed that I had to do it. Um, so none of that, you know, I wasn't crucified. Uh, there were those individuals that were appalled at what I did, some within my own family, but I received far more praise and uh, support from 
white family members than I ever dreamed that I would. In fact, uh, the book unearthed uh, a lot of white family members that I had never known uh, because they had gotten out of the South for the same reason that I left the South, which was their Mm -hmm. abhorrence of racism. So I was brought together with like minds within my own family, which was a, a benefit. You know, it was icing on the cake because I never dreamed that that would happen. And then, you know, in, in many ways even better, uh, I was brought together with African-American cousins um, that came forward as a result of the book. Uh, and the first, the first was um, Jackie Irvine, who uh, if people want to read about me and Jackie, you can... Google my name and uh, New York Times, and there's a story, there was a story in the New York Times about me and Jackie, and Jackie is a descendant of the youngest man on the tree that night, John Moore, Um, and we only came together, she was only able to put herself, her family into my book because I had one name in that book, which my editor, which was her third great-grandfather, which my editor had had arm twisted me to take out of the book uh, because he didn't feel that it was necessary. He thought it was extraneous, mm-hmm. and there was something in me that said, "No, you've got to leave Milford Moore in your book, even if he's only there once. You've got to. He's got to be there." And it was Milford Moore that became the lure, you know, the clue for Jackie and and her whole wonderful family. Uh, to come, you know, to come together with me, and we are, you know, we have matched in DNA, and we have become very good friends. And in fact, the two of us are writing are writing some articles together right now. Um, I've also been brought together with uh, descendants of another lynching that my family was involved in uh, in 1947. That my my grandfather at the time was the sheriff of Harris County. And a man, uh, a black farmer by the name of Henry Peg Gilbert was uh, murdered by the police chief in the Hamilton jail. And um, I've been a part of uh, a process to memorialize that lynching uh, and to uh, erect a marker for it and have come together with family members. Uh, I don't know if I told this story the last time I was on, but this was the first time that I was brought inadvertently, had no idea. I was to read at the LaGrange, Georgia Library, and I began to talk about this very obscure uh, part at the end of my book. I didn't have a lot of information on this murder by the police chief, but my grandfather was the sheriff, and he was legally responsible for the safety of, uh, of, of people in the jail. Um, I had not been talking about Mr. Gilbert in my other talks, but suddenly that was all I could talk about. And I had no idea that his relatives, his descendants, were sitting right there in front of me, uh, six or eight of them. And uh, so, you know, I was I was called upon to deal with that, to face that, which I had never done. I did not know, you know, I had no idea what I knew it would happen probably eventually, but I had no idea how I would deal with that. But these people were, were so lovely, and, you know, it, we had become very, very close friends. And um, one of the, the granddaughter of Mr. Gilbert and I go around giving talks. Um, and this is what, what I've been doing. This is what my life has become. 
uh, I've become part of what I call the lynching memorial movement of Equal Justice Initiative, which is kind of the mainstay behind all of these calls it the Community Remembrance Projects. But uh, I've been a part of eight or ten of those around the country as a researcher or a speaker or an advisor. And I do it with descendants of people that, that my family was responsible for lynching. Um, and that has been uh, just the, the, the whole way, you know, this country within months of, of, of my book coming out, and it had nothing to do with my book, but we, we, plunged, we found ourselves plunged into, you know, four years of sheer hell. Uh, racially, I mean, the the country went crazy, and it had been building anyway. It didn't just come out of nowhere, um, and you know, a lot of what was going on was was no surprise to black people, but white people like me who thought we were savvy, who thought we knew what was going on, you know, had our eyes opened, um, and it's it's been a reckoning, you know, it's been a reckoning for black and white, uh, and I think what's happening is that we are talking to each other across the table in ways, in honest ways, painful ways, but ways mm-hmm. that are, I think, uh, moving us into action. And that's what my, my trajectory has been. Uh, in the last five years is I've been moved into a, at, to a level of action, of honesty with white people, because that's where I try to put most of my energy uh, into talking to other white people helping them, those who are interested, to do what I did, saying, yeah, get out there and shake those family trees. Because what it does is it brings it brings you into connection with true history in a way that mm-hmm. I think we have to connect to true, to true history, not that lost cause history that a lot of us were raised with. Um, it doesn't have to turn you against your family. It did not turn me against my family. It turned a few of my family against me, but you know, quite frankly, I don't think they ever liked me that much in the first place because I've always been a little different. I've always been a little bit of a rebel. So, uh, but but people, what you become is a, a kind of a, a lighthouse in a way for other people to say, if she did it, I can do it. Uh, you know, if she didn't get assassinated, I can do it. Um, and what I say to other white people is it makes you stronger, you know. It makes you stronger. Uh, it makes you feel more whole because we have been, the trauma of being a perpetrator descendant is great. And it's not the same as the trauma of being an African-American, a descendant of someone who was lynched or someone who was enslaved. It's not the same, but it's still there. And until it's dealt with, there are going to be these walls between us. And so, you know, what I tell people is I always work, I was always an ally. All my life I was an ally in uh, racial justice uh, projects, but I, there was always a distance. There was always something keeping me apart. And I always felt that I had the right to come and go as I wished. Well, that that sense of entitlement has gone 
totally gone for me. I don't have the mm-hmm. right to come and go. I'm, you know, I'm here. I'm here for the duration. I just turned 80, so I can't say what that duration is going to be, but I'm, I'll be here as long as I'm here. And uh, that's the difference I see being made among other white people who do this family work, who do, who do what James Baldwin called roots work, you know, that we really mm-hmm. have to go mm-hmm. back to the beginning. We have to go back to the beginning. Well, what, and what then we find, you know, that our family is not just those white folks. Our family is, is the whole country. It's, it's all kinds of people. And, right. you know, I judge my, I, I sort of laugh because I judge my progress in desegregating my life by my Facebook page. And I can remember when Facebook first started. And I had all these white, uh, like, college sorority sisters and high school, you know, all these white racist women on my Facebook page. And then I had some black folks. And I kept thinking, now, how am I going to explain them to each other, you know, because they're all so different, and I don't want to see them getting into it. But now, you know, I, that's the furthest thing from my mind. My Facebook page is every, every so it looks like the United Nations. It's every sort of folks. You know, politically different, racially different, religiously different, all kinds of differences, all mixed up there together. And, um, and I'm perfectly comfortable with that. You know, I have no problem with that. I love to, the last, the last talk I gave before we were shut up inside was in Montgomery, Alabama, but not in AJI. It was in a convention hall. It was the uh, Alabama Association of Police Chiefs. And uh, there were 500 police chiefs sitting, sitting in front of me in this cavernous room while I told stories of their horrible past and, you know, tried to get them to see. Um, why reforming or changing or completely reimagining uh, law enforcement in this country was a necessary thing. Now, that didn't come easy to me, and I'd be lying if I said I enjoyed it. It was agonizing. Um, But, you know, I've gotten to the point that I can do that because I think it's so crucial to this country's uh, future. And I'm sitting right now in a house that is 10 blocks from the United States Capitol. This is where I live. So on January the 6th, which was, uh, which was 15 days, 16 days before the anniversary of that 1912 lynching, uh, a bunch of hoodlums, uh, white nationalists, Klansmen, Nazis, broke into our Capitol killed people, wounded people. And I'm thinking, you know, this is no longer this is no longer about race. I mean race is at the heart of it, granted. But our very democracy is at stake. And, you know, we can no longer choose to bite our tongue and, and be nice and be polite and not hurt people's feelings. We have to tell the truth. So that's, well, I wanna that's just where stop I you for a minute, Karen. Karen, I wanna yeah, I'm done. I'm done. And I want to take you back to something uh, because <laughs> you you talked about truth and you talked about well what are we uncovering in our families 
And basically you're saying it's, it's no longer okay to just do safe genealogy. And when I say that, I mean only discovering the flowery, nice things about your family. Because uh-huh. there are skeletons in the closet. And so uh-huh. how are you getting folks, and you say your, your audience, your target group are white individuals, how are you getting them to understand that they need to also dig a little deeper and not just do right. safe genealogy? Yeah. Well, you know, in all honesty, Bernice, the people that come to hear me have got something going on already. So I don't think that I take people from a a, a totally safe genealogy place into an unsafe place overnight. You know, uh, I try to go, I I try to be practical uh, and to work with people that, you know, people raise questions that make you know they're wanting something more but aren't quite sure what it is they want. Um, so reading my book has, you know, has brought a lot of people out of that, you know, out of the doorway into the into the room that they want to be in to begin to ask those questions. I think, though, that, uh, you know, it gets to people just like, the you know, the woman on my bed. And, I mean, a lot of people... You know, I almost think that in this day and age, almost any white person that is doing genealogy has it in their subconscious that there's something more they want, but they are maybe afraid to admit it even to themselves. Uh, And Mm -hmm. it's getting harder and harder, you know, even on the genealogy sites to ignore this stuff because, you know, in other people in their, like, ancestry, I I had a lot of my information off of uh, other people's family trees in Ancestry where they had old newspaper articles about, you know, their their great-grandfather killing some black man. I was amazed mm-hmm. at what people were willing, you know, willing to put in their family trees. And these weren't people like me that are trying to do racial justice. I guess they just thought it was funny. I don't know what they thought, but, but it was there. So, you know, mm-hmm. this stuff is popping up. And, you know, one of the things that I've done is I've made sure that anybody that's related to me that's on Ancestry uh, knows about my book. Uh, I, I, put, I push it in their face, you know, so that they've got to start. Mm-hmm. And then they start asking questions. And then they start thinking about other, other lines of their family that they hadn't thought about and asking me how, how would they find out something about that line. So, you know, I'm really trying to work with the soft, you know, uh, with a a, a softer stratum of people rather than the, the, I'm not going to the United Daughters of the Confederacy meetings or the DAR meetings or anything like, you know, the the colonial dames, uh, trying to change their minds. So I am, I actually am working on a few, a few aspects of that. Every, every week I get a little bit bolder and a little bit more creative about, where to go and who to talk to. But, you know, mostly I work with uh, people who are coming to come into the table meetings and uh, are part of the Link Descendants working group and are actively, you know, looking for this information. Um, And even people that are actively looking for this information, 
need support, uh, you know, need emotional support, mm-hmm. need, you know, just need a hand to hold because it's, it's, it's pretty rough stuff that, you know, that you're discovering. Um, and then some of us, you know, I'm working on, uh, I'm in some small groups here in D.C. of people. Uh, we're, we're working through a workbook called Me and White, White Supremacy and Me, where we're looking at our own, you know, how we've, how we've all been touched by this, even those of us that think we're these great liberals. You know, we've all been touched by this, this you know, the, the sea we swim in is white supremacists. So, you know, even, you know, we've, we've all got a lot to learn. Um, but I think that, uh, you know, like anybody in my family now that, go, that looks at my family tree, for hence, they're going to find a black and white family tree within that family tree because Jackie mm-hmm. Irvine and I have combined our trees. So now there are black folks on the Williams and Hadley family trees and, uh, and on Ancestry. And that's what a lot of mm-hmm. people are starting to do. And then they say, well, where did this happen? You know, how did this happen? What's the story here? Um, so, you know, I keep, even though I'm not doing a lot of genealogy now for, my, for myself, I do, I do help other people with their genealogy. You know, so I keep I, I keep on the genealogy, and I'm so excited about, you know, the the web like our black ancestry. And I found my what's the name of that other one? I found my ancestors in slavers or something Africa. like that. Uh, Did you find? You know, where Africa? people are having this conversation now, uh, and people yes. are trading trading information. It's it's wonderful. Right, it is. And, you know, I I was listening to the show where you were on back in 2016, and I think I asked you the question, well, what has writing this book done for you? So tell us, I mean, what what can you say about this? You've written it now. It's out there. What has it done for you? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think, you know, I've, I've said it several different ways. Uh, I think the best way is, um, you know, I was listening to an old interview earlier today uh, with James Baldwin, and he was talking about why, you know, what are, what are, what are white people so afraid of? Uh, what keeps them at a distance from black people? Well, they're afraid of what they've done, you know. So we, we have projected, we have projected mm-hmm. what we have done uh, onto black people and tell ourselves that they are the, they're the y'all are the dangerous ones. Y'all are the ones we have to be afraid of. Well, when you when you put your family garbage out there, you have nothing more to project. So suddenly you just see people as people. You just see people as people. And when you just see people as people, then you work better with them. And, you know, mm-hmm. when you just see yourself as, as, a, as a person with all kinds of flaws, uh, who comes from a family that had all kinds of flaws, you no longer have anything to defend or to, or to fear or to guard against. And, you know, so we're, we're, we're not talking genealogy here. We're talking mental health. You know, we're talking basic <laughs> mental health. Maybe we're talking theology as well. I'm not a, you know, I'm not a real religious person. But I think there's something in the Bible and something in the Buddha and something in all religions, all, all theology, um, you know, about owning what's yours and, and, and getting rid of what's not. 
so, you know, I get up in the morning feeling about 300 pounds lighter. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because I dumped mm-hmm. all, you know, because I dumped all my family crap, uh, and I didn't have to put it on somebody else. You know, I didn't write a blaming, shaming book. It's not a book that you know was meant to take revenge on anybody. Uh, that was why I was very careful to to create a context to say this is what our country was doing, this is what the region was doing, this was the this was the water they swam in. Uh, you know, most of them didn't have a clue there was anything wrong with what they were doing. Probably uh, we're doing things just as awful right now that we don't have a clue about, you know. Uh, so that we're just human beings, but we're trying to, to be better. Um, and I, I think that's how I've changed. I don't, you know, I don't feel like I have to save the world, but at the same time, I don't feel like I have to run uh, from a lot of things that I feel that I was running for from for much of my life, uh, you know, but the I'm kind of in and out. With you, Karen, I'm going to what? share something with what? you. This is a quote that I uh, took from you: okay. "The knowledge <laughs> that it is only through facing our ugliest truth that we can move forward to a place of understanding." Absolutely. You said that. Absolutely. You said that. I said that. I, I must have been quoting. You said that. I must have been quoting somebody smarter than me. But yeah, I like that. Can I quote you? <laughs> it's true, though. So, Karen, I just want to thank you for coming coming on today, and to just ask you, do you have any parting words before we close out? Oh. I just want to thank you for all that you do. You were one of one of my first people that I met on this path, and just knowing you and watching what you're doing has been, you know, such a source of strength and inspiration for me, Bernice. So thank you for all you do and keep it up, and thank you for uh, providing me this space to to say probably way too much, but uh, I, I, I love what you do, and I love talking to you. So thank you so much. Okay. And I want to just thank everyone else for tuning in today. And and think about this. The truth shall set you free. Uh, we're, we're getting ready to celebrate Juneteenth. We're getting ready to talk about resilience. Let's keep it going. Let's celebrate, folks, and love. I look forward to all of you joining me next week. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and Karen, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much, Bernice. We have so much work to do, but we have so much to do.
With Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.